The subject for the evening talk is the power of mind. <clears throat> We've perhaps heard with some frequency and read about in the religious literature of some expressions of the power of mind and so in the Sanskrit they're sometimes referred to as siddhis and one has the kind of equivalent in the uh, some of the Christian literature in, in the forms of miracles which were uh, alleged to have taken place and all of this is to some degree or other attributed to the power of mind, possibly under the, the influence of a, an external agency. And as a result of these, these writings in the literature, which quite often, of course, are taken literally by some and taken symbolically by others, there's come about what I would feel or describe as some, in a way, some kind of confusion or misunderstanding, insofar as what appears in the literature, these stories of siddhis, the siddhis, the, the, the powers of mind of the yogis, the, uh, the powers of mind of the Zen masters, or, or of uh, Jesus, or, or, or whatever, and somehow or other got muddled or confused with the religious experience, and that somehow these two have been tied together. And so one hears uh, s stories, and both sometimes in the West and all too frequently in the East, of stories of miracles taking place, of extraordinary feats of uh, accomplishment. And then we have these uh, efforts sometimes to try to Im imitate these. So one has stories of people who have uh, allegedly been living in the Himalayas for um, hundreds of years. One has the stories of people, uh, yogis with great powers, uh, flying through the air and uh, uh, walking on the water, um, going through the walls or what, whatever it might be. And one may, in this, this area, one may or may not believe in, in these um, so-called miracles or siddhis. And it's rather noticeable that all these accounts, they're never accounts which we, at least for myself anyway, personally experience or see or, or observe in the here and now. There's always something, these miracles, something which can take place, which is rather a long way from Boston or New York, or wherever one is, is living. It's what they can do in that other part of the world. And in my ex experience and uh, travels and having the privilege of spending quite a few years in the East and hearing of these stories, I have never ever seen anybody fly through the air walk on the water, walk through walls, or whatever. 
And the conclusion that I have um, come to is, I feel it's one big myth. I don't believe a word of it. And, and I say that because being the reasonably good Buddhist <laughs> that, I, that, I, that I am, I tend to be influenced by the, the message of things co being co-dependent, co-arising, dependent arising, in which in order for events to take place, then there have to be the conditions for them to arise. And if those conditions are not there, then they simply won't arise. And rather similarly with these so-called miracles, whether it's the, the more, um, the, the, the recent one of producing um, Seiko watches and Vibhuti out of nothing. I mean, this is uh, something which gets a little bit of uh, titillation for people. Um, seems to me it all belongs to this area of myth. Myth in so, so far as it goes, for me, it goes completely against reasoning, I would dare say intelligence, to believe that something comes from nothing. And if it does, then it makes a complete fallacy of the message of the Buddha in the last two and a half thousand years. And I prefer to opt on his side personally. So these, these areas, and if, any, if you do, of course, I, I say this, and I wish to keep an open mind about this. So if you know of any of your neighbours who are walking across their swimming pool in the mornings, <laughs> or you know, flying through the air rather than the trouble of having to get into the car, please let me know. But if it's only hearsay, then I don't find myself interested to hear about or read about. I hope that makes the point clear. <laughs> and I feel that if one... Whatever the relationship to this area, and I'm just expressing a personal view there, um, may be, I don't consider that, those areas, as particularly important, as significant, and I don't consider these so-called miracles or cities as having any relevance on the spiritual life whatsoever. And, there, and therefore, if one as it were, turns one's attention away from what I've come to believe over the, over the years as part of the mythology of religion and turns back to the, the practice and the application of it, then perhaps one might, we might be able to look and inquire, what is the real power of mind? And therefore look in, in, a, in a different way. And in looking in a somewhat different way, we might look at, well, what, when I think of what is the real power of mind, what, what do you think of when, when you turn your uh, attention in that way? 
And sometimes we, we, we see the, the power of, of mind, not so much expressed through what those waves which I've just referred, it, referred to, but rather the power of mind which tends to get connected, shall we say, with certain kind of personalities. And so that the certain kind of personalities do bring about upon others good, bad and indifferent, but bring about quite some degree of bearing and influence. And I particularly have in mind the, the various charismatic figures who are in this world, who are in the religious life. And very easily I feel that there is a danger there. One is influenced by a certain kind of um, personality of mind. One somehow for all the various reasons that we tend to do this, often out of our own lack of sense of self-worth, I think is a major factor, we tend to identify with such a person and believe that that person somehow or other represents or is an archetype of who we want to be or what we want to be like. And all of that tends to undermine one's sense of self-worth in life. And there's a, there's a rather an alarming tendency in the, in the religious life to, to look up to, to identify with, and not infrequently also to imitate another person, the guru figure, in all the forms, shapes and sizes that they can come in. And I feel that that may be an expression, at least say, shall we say, from the authority figure, a certain expression of the power of mind, the, the charismatic power of mind. But is that a real, real inner power of mind? Does it belong really somewhere else? So all of this is, in a way, what I'm saying here, is something of a shift away from mythology, a shift away from dependency and a shift back to ourselves and seeing well, what is the power of mind and not looking outwardly so much but looking inwardly for it. The Buddha has spoken of the power of mind. The word in the Pali uh, language is uh, Bala, B-A-L-A. He's spoken of five powers of mind. None of them to do with those things which I have referred to, of course, and hardly worth even mentioning. But what are the five powers of mind? What would you say? I mean, ask yourself inwardly, are the powers of mind. And one of, one of them, we'll take, we'll take each one, uh, one of them is faith, extraordinary power of mind, that one has faith and one sees and recognises what one has faith in. And one never underestimates, I feel, the importance and the significance of faith.
And sometimes that faith, religiously of course, is externally directed. Faith in a person, uh, faith in God, or whatever. Some faith here is, in this kind of practice, doesn't have, has to a degree of course, so much externalization. It's another order of faith. It's a faith in so far as here one ga engages in a meditation practice. One applies one's attention to meditation. There's a certain faith there that there's a validity to it. There's a certain faith there that by giving one's wholehearted attention to the living present that it has a usefulness to it. So the faith itself is not something which is so much tied up with something distant which one can't really prove or disprove. Faith in God, faith in um, heaven, faith in a particular person. And usually having faith in a particular person, I would recommend to you that if you do have that the person is dead. It, it, it's much better and, and much safer and much easier that having faith in, especially religious faith in people who are alive um, can bring about, I mean, rather seriously, can bring about a lot of pain and a lot of uh, disappointment and a lot of feeling of being let down because the person who is the object of faith hasn't performed in the way that one wanted them to. And there's been quite a few difficulties and Many of you know difficulties here in, here in the States as a result of, of uh, faith and expectations and not being met. So in one area is this area of faith, the, the application of faith and the faith which is something which is more tangible in a way, more, more visible. Faith in connection with the application of our attention into the here and now, having faith in doing that. And there's something for discovery and frequency of discovery through the developing the power of mind, the expression of faith, to do that. So when the Buddha has spoken of the element of these powers of mind, he has spoken of all things directly concerned with our practice. Faith effort, samadhi, mindfulness, wisdom. And these, these are the, f these he is referred to, and I think um, um, may say rather wisely, as the real powers of mind. And each one of these areas of faith and effort and samadhi, that means a certain Meditative depth, let's, let's define samadhi as that. Faith, effort, samadhi, mindfulness, wisdom. That each one of these elements can within our daily life and within our meditative life be cultivated and developed. And the cultivation and develop means that each one of these rather has to find its balance with the others. Now, in this giving um, attention to the, the practice and this application of, 
of meditation. Within the context of a single day, as you're especially here now on the first day of a meditation retreat, the day itself is one in which so easily, especially if you're new to a situation like this, one isn't very clear of what one is doing, and when one isn't clear in life of what we are doing in the present, we also can't really know where it's going. It's one thing if you know what you're doing, we have a sense of the present and the way that it leads into the future. But if you're coming into the situation like this for the first time, no experience, uh, no experience at all, you know, someone has been leaning on you to come here for one reason or another, and you finally bowled over and, and walked in, that within that one doesn't quite know what meditation is, one doesn't quite know where it is going. So much of the initial period itself really is the expression of a certain faith. The faith which comes from what one is hearing, the faith which comes from what is often, the, as it were, the best advertisement of all, of knowing somebody who seems to have benefited directly from meditation and from sustained meditation, and seeing that in another person, and brings about inside of us a certain faith that it's possible. And of course that important factor, that the faith in oneself. Now when faith is being co-joined to practice, co-joined to mindfulness, co-joined to effort, co-joined to samadhi, it brings about understanding. One understands what this process is all about. And so that that factor of faith as the first power of mind comes together and harmonizes itself with the fifth one, which is understanding, or to use the fancy word, wisdom. Now, in this development and, uh, and application of our, of our mind in a, in a meditative way, many things which occur in that, as I was explaining this morning, tend to show everything except faith. Instead of having faith, one has doubt. Instead of effort, one is yawning. Instead of samadhi, one is um, spaced out. You know, instead of mindfulness, there is confusion. And, in, and instead of um, understanding, there is despair, in whatever. So sometimes one is, as it were, comes face to face with the opposite. And any practice, any focusing in one way will help to show its opposite. This is one of the real phenomena in life. One's shedding of light, of mindfulness, of awareness, on one thing in life will, to a similar and corresponding degree, reveal what, it, what isn't there. 
If you, for example, like to have, or I like to have an image of myself as being, uh, whatever, a clear person, or a loving person, or what, whatever, and that's all that I want to see, and that's all I want to maintain, I'm going to keep facing the unclarity. I'm going to keep on facing the negativity, the lack of love. When I put my mind and attention to the breathing, I'm going to become aware of how much I'm not aware of it. I'm going to see how difficult it is to maintain that one of the powers of mind, which is the samadhi, which is a sustained meditative focus. So the application of the mind in a particular way will tend to reveal its opposite. And this we have to live with and work with and face in our life. Gradually, in, especially in the religious life, I feel there has come about a, a kind of change. And a kind of change which is coming about is the, the need and necessity to see where faith is and to see how faith itself really has to be balanced with the other factors. Because if not, if there is too much on faith, too much on devotion, whether you're doing meditation practice or whether you're in a religious group or organization or have a lot of faith, whatever way, too much of that easily invites its opposite, the faith crisis, easily invites the entering into doubt. And one sees people, I can remember many situations of people who go through quite some inner degree of torture because the doubt has set in and it eats up inside. Doubt in other people, doubt in oneself, doubt in the Dharma, doubt in the tradition, etc. So an important question with these powers of mind is where do I plant my faith? Where in life do I see my faith going. And is that faith balanced? Is that faith coupled with an understanding in life? Is that coupled with wisdom as well? I can remember some time ago when I was a, when I was a monk two Swedish missionaries came to the monastery all in good faith and they went to see the Ajahn Ajahn means teacher they went to see the teacher and began to speak about God and they explained it in rather simple terms. They said 
Because of Jesus, they had a direct telephone line to God. And any time, of any day, they could telephone God and speak with him and he would answer all of their prayers. And then they didn't have to do anything. They didn't have to have any faith, I'm sorry, any, make any effort. They didn't have to change themselves. They didn't have to undergo austerities. They just had faith in Jesus and there was a direct telephone line to God. Now, the teacher, Ajahn Damodaro, frankly, the missionaries spoke fluent um, Thai language. They were um, living in southern Thailand and uh, going about their work of conversion. And the teacher listened to them and he just scratched his head, completely bemused, you know, by, by them. You know, apart from the fact that the majority of Buddhists in Thailand have never heard of God and never heard of the Jesus, so it's a completely foreign language as it was. So he said to them, he said, my name at that time was um, uh, uh, Kitty Supo. Uh, he said to the Swedish, do Swedish missionaries, go and see Kitty Supo and he'll talk to you about consciousness, the states of consciousness. And can you imagine? So they, 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 I remember, I was walking up and down doing my walking um, um, meditation and they walked over and I, like many people, wasn't into having my uh, practice um, uh, interrupted. So I just kept walking up and down. And so the two missionaries stood there, completely nonplussed. They with the, the Bible in one hand, and me watching my feet touching the ground. Such, such a differences, I mean differences in, in faith. So we sat down and we began to talk, talk together. And all I have of this exchange is one one memory. And as we sat down, I didn't talk about consciousness, though they did talk about Jesus. <laughs> that in the conversation, they were speaking to me, speaking about Jesus and about love. And as someone who personally has much tremendous love for Jesus and much faith in, in the message and has derived personally much inspiration, especially in some of the more difficult times in the monkhood from the example of Jesus, that in listening, and, there were t and the two missionaries were, were speaking about love, and right as we were talking, there were the, these ants running ar around. You know, there was a monastery it was on the sand, and the ants were just all running, ar running around on the floor. And in the midst of the conversation, rather unfortunately, the missionary was talking about love of Jesus and going like this, Stubbing them out. N not, you know, by your leave, is, is it okay, or, or what? Not even just putting them out while, while he was talking. And I completely lost thread of the conversation. I was just looking at his, <laughs> at, at his you know, having spent various times, you know, fishing ants out of the toilet, I was, felt a bit sensitive to this, this because I was just watching his fingers there. And he said, well, they have no soul, it doesn't matter. 
a complete difference in belief, a difference in faith, a difference in, in focus, a difference in relationship. Both one coming from faith and faith in a certain source and, and that producing a particular way of looking and another coming from another kind of faith I would like to feel a little bit more connected with life itself. And it's those kind of areas in, in our life where seeing what's worth having faith in, what's worth being committed to, does the faith produce understanding? Out of the faith, does sensitivity to life come? And all of that requires our looking and our inquiry into and to seeing what faith as a power can do for us in our relationship to life. And if it's not balanced with, with understanding, then as I say, the Something is misplaced about faith. <clears throat> one of the very kind and thoughtful expressions, though, that the missionaries um, gave, one of the monks, Western monks, um, got quite a severe stomach order um, some months later and every um, month or so uh, a plane would fly with a cargo plane from uh, Europe to uh, Thailand bringing a whole variety of things to, uh, to Thailand um, literature and uh, various tracts and um, equipment and so forth. And they very kindly arranged for this uh, Western monk, Buddhist, Buddhist monk, to take that empty, go back on the empty plane back, back to the West. And I would say that's a genuine, uh, beautiful expression of thoughtfulness, of, of, of a living faith in action which shows itself in the form of um, friendship, in the form of love thy neighbour. In, in this, in this areas of these five mental powers, perhaps the ones which most affect us and which we are most um, in concern about, let us say, while we are here, are the ones where, which require the application of effort, which I'll speak about on another night, which require the samadhi, which require the mindfulness. And in a way, these three also have to be balanced together. Now, in the development of the balance of that, we have to ask ourselves, and, and we can't get anywhere in this practice without self-honesty. We just can't deceive. If, if we deceive ourselves, if we're trying to Im impress others, if we're not being honest, how can we find truth if we're not being truthful? And the only person that you and I have to be really truthful here is to ourselves. Now, that means that within the context of the day, where and in what ways have we truly applied mindfulness? Where have we spaced out? How much 
have we eaten? How many hours have we slept? How much have we bought into the fantasies, the daydreams, the projections, the indulgences? Now that, that's, that's where difficult it is and sometimes hard as it is to accept in ourselves, that's where the self-honesty comes in. Sometimes that self-honesty brings as its side effect negative feelings about oneself, guilt feelings about oneself, feeling uncomfortable about oneself. And to some degree or other, we rather have to sometimes accept that that is a, a side effect or a consequence with regard to honesty. And it's not at all difficult to spend ages in the meditation hall, be religiously present for quite a few number of sittings throughout the course of the day, and it hasn't meant a thing. It's just going through the ritual. And sometimes when it's going through the, the ritual like that, to be honest, it's no different from going to church on a Sunday morning. One finds one, I don't know about you, but anyway for me, finds oneself experiencing the same kind of mind state. Is when one was young and one's parents said, one has to go to church. And so one would walk to the church and one would engage in one's momentary genuflection, as they would say in Catholicism, and then you'd sit there and then the Mass would get underway and for a while one would stand up and then kneel. I don't know if you have this like this in the States, and then you sit down. And you just, basically the attitude of mind is waiting for it to be over. And there, and in the church it may be for 45 minutes because one doesn't have the faith or one doesn't feel very connected and then one would go, come back next Sunday and rather unfortunately in a situation like this one's going through this ritual about eight, ten, eight or ten times a day. It's not just uh, for 45 minutes and it's all over. And very easy, both for people who have just come as well as for those of you who have been in and out of this hall hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times over the years, it's too easy for all of us to sit down, be so familiar, we forget this is our practice. It's so easy with anything which is repeated and we do again and again to forget what we're here for. And that lovely phrase of um, Suzuki Roshi, that Zen mind, beginner's mind, you know, never mind the Zen, let's, get them, let's have the beginner's mind. You know. <laughs> that the, really uh, using the practice in such a way that there's a real sense of beginner's mind, the real sense of the application of freshness as much as possible to each meditation.
And then all the doors will open for us. All the statements of the sages and the mystics and, the, and of the Buddha and of Jesus, past, present and future, all has the opportunity to come clear because we are applying the powers of mind, of faith, in conjunction with mindfulness, in conjunction with effort, in conjunction to samadhi and understanding. And perhaps one of the things which can emerge for us in our meditation is one of the things which gets talked about and thought about and discussed with great frequency in a way is that one of the primary conditions for each of those powers of mind and something talked about so frequently in the field of meditation is letting go. What do we need to let go of? What have we been accumulating today? What have we been building up on today? What is it that we need to see to let go so that the power of mind can actually come into our practice? Now sometimes it, that letting go is taking place right here in the meditation hall. Sometimes it's the sounds that are coming from other people. And so sometimes, like some people leave me a note, please tell Christopher, everybody, that there are some nails on the lino there and that's where the creaks are made. And if they can just keep away from the creaks then my meditation will come to samadhi so much more quickly. Like that. Or another person is that they're breathing heavily. That person up the front or that person down at the back is breathing heavily and I'm sure I'd be much closer to enlightenment if they would only stop breathing. <laughs> Whatever it might, might be. And sometimes, I must say too, with the breathing and sometimes when there's noise in the breathing, Sometimes it's quite involuntary. There is sometimes for people, there is tension, there is pressure there, and it's not possible to breathe silently because of the, the breathing or the condition, internal condition, does sometimes stop people from that. There are others too who breathe and for, forget how the noise does create more sound than than what is necessary. But in either case, whatever, whatever it is, in our meditations and here in the meditation hall, there's nearly always going to be something which is stopping one. And so we tend to produce inside of ourselves in the meditation this if-only syndrome. I'd have these powers of mind if only that wasn't there. If only that wasn't happening in my life. So there's always something which is holding one up in some way or other. And every one of us has the thing. Or sometimes it's several things. 
And if we didn't have anything, we wouldn't have any reason to practice. <laughs> Would we? If there's no obstructions, no back pain, no knee difficulty, no thoughts wandering, no unresolved emotions, no difficulty in the relationships, no money hassles, if we didn't have any of anything whatsoever, only an idiot would come to a place like this. <laughs> so, it's, so seeing that within the context of our meditations and the context of our practice, there's bound to be some form of difficulty, some form of obstruction, some, something which in a way one feels is holding one up or whatever. And so practice is owing to that. Practice is because there are difficulties with life, in life, in our relationship to life. And the working with that and the exploration of that develops and brings out of us more power of mind. And there's a way, and in a way one might say, the promise is, the assurance is, what one, is, what one hears and then what is spoken about is, that if these powers of mind, which I refer to, are cultivated, are developed, are manifested, then the extraordinary factor is that this power, the power of mind is such that it can accommodate this entire universe. All the events of life and death, all the movements and all of the activities, all the manifestations and expressions, that when there is the ripening of these powers of mind coming together, the whole field of existence in all its extraordinary entirety, is accommodated in such a mind, in such a consciousness. That truly is the power. That truly is the miracle of nature. And our key to that is that element, let us say, initially at least, of self-awareness, that precious element which you and I as human beings have and so rarely genuinely exercise. And in our exercising of that here, bringing these things to, developing these things to a fulfillment, the whole universe rests in such a mind. and all the other so-called powers of mind, whether they're possible or whether they're not, all these so-called miracles, whatever, all pale into insignificance, tri trivial things. And just you see somebody walking on the water, <laughs> it's just a yawn. So let's develop a, the real, real practice and pay true respect to ourselves and to each other and to what the real power of mind is.
may all beings be in touch with life. May all beings be in touch with the mental life. May all beings be grounded. <laughs>